0: Is the Modern Rubbish Podcast with your hosts, Wyatt Koish and David Paha. In this episode, Night of the Hunter. Enjoy.
1: This week, we're doing um, a movie that I guess kind of a major omission from both of our film viewing experience. I had never, I don't think I'd even heard of it before you suggested it. This is I, one of those I'm movies, for, yeah, no, oh no sorry. it's like it's one of those movies that I um see how long we can how we can build the tension without saying the name of the movie, but <laughs> wait, but people will have seen it in the name of the episode already, so <laughs> <laughs> there's no point in doing this. Um, yeah, but no it's it, it is it's one of those movies that like uh, there are a lot of very similarly titled movies and even mm. similarly titled movies from the same general era so i think for a while i just was like oh yeah i've i've seen that and was like wait no i totally haven't seen that mm. like i've seen other seen five other movies that have the same title format but
0: yeah
1: i've never seen this and so then uh yeah when looking at like we wanted to do an older movie a black and white movie you know something distant from the sort of 70s, 80s exploitation thing and then also distant from the more recent censor or something in the dirt or it follows, like more contemporary stuff. Then it was like, oh yeah, let's do this. So this, of course, is Night of the Hunter. Mm -hmm. Uh, 1955, so meets the criteria of old and black and white.
0: Yeah. Uh, But it was pretty magnificent i would say like i did not expect that for this movie i i expected like pretty cool like okay old school black and white might have some cool moments or something but like most of the movie was was kind of trippy and like beautifully staged and beautifully like composed like um like you know David, There was actually one scene that reminded me of David Lynch. I can't mm. remember what ex- specific was, but uh, you know that David Lynch short where they had those with the old camera? I forgot the name of it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like it, the scene is this kind of country, uh, yeah. like rural country uh, setting. I was like, wow, this looks a lot like that David Lynch short um but also just bringing up david lynch because he did like his his introduction into films was basically to treat film like moving paintings because he was a painter right and i was like wow this this movie totally fulfills that same sort of thing it's it's like a moving painting some in some scenes
1: absolutely
0: yeah.
1: Sorry, I was just looking for the, because I feel like we talked about this same Lynch thing with Sam. We did, yeah, and it's back um, in the Existence episode.
0: Yeah, it we it's um, premonition of a something. I forgot the name. Yeah, premonition of an evil deed or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's I mean, it's like a three-minute, two-minute, three-minute short or something. But mm-hmm. it's, oh, it's amazing. But it's black and white, and it's on these old cameras. The Night of the Hunter is filmed way more, profi- like, w- way more updated. <laughs> Even though it came out, like, 40, 50 years before. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, because Lynch used the old old technology for that short it actually looks like it predates night of the hunter yeah but yeah no there's it's just it was just like a magnificently beautiful movie to watch this and i was like wow i gotta watch this again
1: yeah it was funny how like um suggesting like in, in talking about this like okay cool we're gonna do night of the hunter or like uh let's watch i'll watch it i'll uh you know Look up some info about it, and then the discovering, like, oh, this is an incredibly well-regarded movie. Mm. <laughs> this is yeah. it's like on the you know some people are like it's the you know the next best thing to Citizen Kane. It's the most influential crime <laughs> thing. Like, it's the I'm like oh, <laughs> so this is this is like both of us saying I've never heard you know Sergeant Pepper's <laughs> or like <laughs> yeah, like we have a we have a, a a podcast about video games and it's like do you know about this legend of zelda <laughs> like it's the same guy who made mario whoa no way yeah dude yeah. i don't know how i missed this <laughs> like so so i'm just saying maybe as a get this out early that like um we are aware <laughs> that we we are talking about something that perhaps is very clearly established is yeah. um, very very far from the rubbish word in our uh, show title, and uh, yeah, we know we 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 haven't seen some we hadn't prior to the other day seen something that was uh, very important to the entire uh, cinematic landscape for the last <laughs> <laughs> nearly seventy years.
0: I guess what's rubbish um, in this episode is our knowledge of film
1: it's (laughs) us it's us we're the rubbish (laughs) yeah we are (laughs) um and so if if uh we know okay (laughs) so i'm sure that you know what we're saying has been anything we say has been well covered by afi by roger ebert by the French Cinematic Institute, like, yeah, I get it. We're probably not going to say anything (laughs) massively revelatory in this one. We're getting that out of the way. Who cares? (laughs) This is our show, fuck off. (laughs) It's sort of freeing (laughs) in that way. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I kind of feel sometimes like, you know, there's, yeah, there is actually less pressure for me to say something, uh, especially revelatory, about... Sergeant Pepper's, or Low, or you know, these really, like, yeah, everybody knows that's great. Then if I'm trying to make the case for some, yeah, something more, more obscure, more, because there's no chance I'm actually going to say something no one has said before about the Beatles. <laughs> so then I just don't worry about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, you don't know. I mean, in the place and time when you take in the the art, is changed. You know.
1: Okay. No, I actually do think that if you that that by being so liberated, then you have the chance to say something new. Yeah, is right. that you know you're not worried about am I the first person to have made this insight? Is this gonna solidify my position as a, a critic, as a yeah. whatever? Like when you stop worrying about that stuff and you just say what you're thinking, feeling, experiencing, then it might be like, oh, actually, nobody has said that one before.
0: Yeah. Well, the one interesting thing is we chose this movie as a horror movie because we generally stick to those types of themes. And this this movie is regarded as a cinematic classic, possibly. I I mean, I didn't even know that.
1: Seems (laughs) like it, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, Aside from... Knowing then, oh, that's a reference in like basically 12 Cohen films, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, really. And like, oh, oh, you start to see all these things pop out where you're like, oh, that's where that film got it. That's where that film got it, you know. Um, but other than that, I mean, we chose it because it was, it's like an old
1: serial killer movie. It is an early serial killer movie, yeah. Um, certainly early Hollywood serial killer movie because obviously, like, M is oh, a serial killer yeah. movie, but that's German, so that's doesn't quite fit in the same narrow spot, but it is it is a very early serial killer movie. Yeah. Um, and also, like, though, yeah, this is, I mean, a territory we've gotten into a number of times is the the tendency for horror to be regarded as kind of a low-culture ghetto, and hence the rubbish and everything like that, that... When a movie that deals with the kinds of things that horror usually deals with is so well done, you know, people often demur and say like, oh no, but it's not horror. It's not, you know, it's so much more than that or something. And um, I do feel like this, you know, it is not a horror movie in the genre sense by any stretch, but... I think this might actually be the scariest thing we've watched so far Mm. in terms of how just, like, the feeling around Robert Mitchum's character is just so evil.
0: Yeah, and it's evil in such a familiar way, a number of familiar ways. One, just being it's a human character, it's not supernatural. Even though some shots are almost like creature featureish.
1: It feels supernatural in some ways yeah. even though it's resolutely not like he's definitely a human murderer and nothing yeah. fantastical is happening but there is a real air of sort of otherness yeah. to it.
0: Yeah, he's got like he's he's a monster, you know, in the in the film he's a monster who deceives uh, in you know the wolf in sheep's clothing type thing, so he's essentially a he's a serial killer. And I okay, first of all, I love in these old movies the first thing, like old movies don't beat around the bush with exposition. They're just like this is what we're dealing with. And the like the first scene with him, he's driving down the road in his car, and he's like, "Thank you, dear Lord, for giving me the chance to kill women." <laughs> <laughs> like, and he's just like, and he's just like praying out loud to God for like, thanks for all the like twelve widows you've given me so far, and all of their money and <laughs> stuff It's just like <laughs> yep. straight up explaining that, like, if you didn't know what this character was, he's a man who goes around and kills widows for their money. <laughs> you know, yeah, but it was so literal. I was like, wow, these these old movies crack me up with this sometimes, you know.
1: And that he's saying it out loud. It's not even yeah. an internal monologue. No, it's, yeah. <laughs> like, he's just like, driving like, down, yeah. like, I sure love killing women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it is like that classic scene of,
0: boy, what a beautiful day, you know, like, just I'm so granted for the beautiful day, like, I got a good parking spot or- and <laughs> <laughs> and I got a fucking, um, this dude gave me 10 bucks or something. I'm so happy. You know, it's like one of those like joys, except just replace that all with homicidal <laughs> yeah. acts like, and stuff. And then this is
1: dude, God, that cracked me up. Yeah. And then right after that, he goes to the 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 sort of review and then we get the like, Oh, and by the way, the reason I like to kill women is because they're trash. Oh yeah. So yeah. it's like, yep, I'm a misogynist. Yeah. Don't don't get this don't get this mixed up at all. This is definitely gendered violence.
0: Yeah. Like
1: it's not a crime of opportunism. It's not about the money as much as it is about me hating women. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it just sets that out. Like in the first five minutes, you're like, okay. <laughs> it's <very> Unrepentant, <laughs> misogynistic serial killer. Yeah. yeah. Which is cool. there's no yeah <laughs> it's, it, it's, which is cool no, <laughs> no. <laughs> there's so many please don't take any of what we're what we've just said out of context, yeah <laughs> I know I've just given somebody a lot of Someone's- sound bites. <laughs>
0: someone's podcast like the the software just ends right after i go which is cool yeah
1: <laughs> misogynism is cool no God. my mom Look. turns this on and is, <laughs> it hears her son say "yup that's it I, <laughs> yeah. i'm an unrepentant misogynist to kill her" <laughs> like
0: <laughs> Look, but I, the like what i was going to say is it's it was it's cool to see that in a movie because we're so used to modern cinema where <clears throat> things are way more veiled you know and even killers sometimes don't come out until like second act sometimes third act you know like you don't know who's killing you don't like it's all this mystery kind of stuff happening but in this one it's just like straight up we have a bad guy this is it and the whole movie's based around this like psychopath you know yeah and and it's I, I also feels like of that movie it's a pretty bold thing to be doing in the 50s, right? I mean, are they just Oh like, yeah. Are they ready to just have like a like a sociopath, <laughs> you know, just yeah. do, this whole movie's going to be about this guy who is so brutally violent and you know, terrible. Um I don't know, it reminds me of like something like Natural Born Killers maybe.
1: Yeah. Where that, It actually does sort of feel yeah.
0: Yeah, the movie's based around the main character is based on just this totally evil dude, you know?
1: Well, so I did look this up as, um, I'm just going to skip summarizing this movie because I'm assuming everybody except us had seen it already. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this, so, yeah, sure. Oh yeah. uh, yeah, Robert Mitchum is this unrepentant, misogynistic serial killer, uh, got some kids and a widow. Are they going to survive and break the cycle? I don't know. We'll watch the movie and find out. <laughs> um, <laughs> But so I did, it's directed, just the, the what I will say, 1955, directed by Charles Lawton, who was a an actor, very well-regarded actor. This is his first uh, film as a director. Based on a book by uh, Davis Grubb, which is a very confusing name because there is a very well-regarded, which is the phrase of this episode, well-regarded, musician named David Grubbs, which is almost the same name, <laughs> yeah. Who was in a band called Gaster Del Sol with Jim O'Rourke? And so it was like, what? David Grubbs? No, Davis Grubb? Okay. That's <laughs> it's like a Bort Bort Bart thing. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh and so I looked up um Davis Grubb is uh, was from West Virginia, where this story takes place, mm. and based the book on a real serial killer uh, oh. from the region who I had never heard of before, but was named from West Virginia Explorer.com, um, was named Harry Powers, who did basically exactly what Robert Mitchum's character in Night of the Hunter does, but in reality. Um, back in the 30s, he the main difference is he stayed in one place and kind of lured uh, widows and their children to him rather than traveling from place to place and mm. doing that whole thing. But uh Did he do it? very he similar have, arc. Well,
0: he must have done it in like a city then or a more densely populated area.
1: It said uh, I don't I mean I I get the sense that West Virginia, that nowhere in West Virginia could be described as densely populated.
0: (laughs) I wonder how you could lure people continually in one area. One thing I thought about with this movie that was like pretty interesting to me was that this was the time. So this was set in like Depression era, I I assume. Um,
1: Yeah, it seems like it.
0: Yeah. And it's like, Basically, the ability to move around and not have a fixed identity. Like, you don't have a driver's license, or a, I mean, they might have had some sort of license or something, but you don't have the same identification or restrictions that we have today, or just yeah. surveillance of any kind. You know, I could go from one city to the next and be a completely different person, and nobody would know the difference, you know? And if you are uh, a uh, like a con man, because he's he's a serial killer and a con man, of course. Yeah. You know. And if you have a good personality, you can just start anew. There's no repercussions. Yeah. You know. Like, I mean, today if I screwed someone over and then went, it's very there's very clear trails will follow me. You know.
1: Yeah. So I thought. And that if it's a- bad enough, then the then yeah
0: yeah I, either people will know me or you know obviously then I'm gonna get arrested or something if I do something you know,
1: yeah, like you could maybe minorly rip somebody off like some Craigslist scam, oh, I'll yeah. sell you some some junk, and like, oh, I had a burner phone number, and I met you in a public place, and so, ha, I sold you my junk, Good yeah. luck finding me, yeah, you probably get away with that, yeah or something comparable to that, but when it starts getting into, like, really any <laughs> anything larger than that, then, yeah, right. like, oh, so Murner phone number, well, who bought the, where'd the phone come from? Okay, well, you know, this guy came into the Boost mobile store and bought yeah. the thing, and, like, well, oh, they have security cameras, and, oh, well, so then this guy and the red light, the, he ran a red light back here, and then we saw, and, you know,
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it was the landscape of this time during the Depression era, which is of... Zero surveillance and zero sort of restriction, like much more freedom in the way that you could move around. Obviously, then people could take advantage of that, you know. Not saying that that's, yeah, not saying like surveillance is good, (laughs) you know, because (laughs) it's its own Pandora's box, right? But yeah, but, um, yeah, a part of the story was really interesting to me because it was that old school traveling, uh, That freedom, which uh, like sometimes the traveling freedom is is often painted as this like beautiful thing, you know. You could go do whatever you want, and you can go explore and be free and open and stuff, you know. But people could also take advantage of that and be do it in a in a very dark way, you know. Which is what this character did. Yeah, he would move from town to town and basically just find weak people to prey on and then take their money and kill them and stuff like that
1: yeah 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 so the the from what i've what I've read the difference is the difference between uh the character in the film and um what did I say his name was Harry Powers, which sounds like a fake yeah. name yeah Max, um, max Power <laughs> max for just how many Simpsons references are we gonna get in here, but well, okay, so Harry Powers was born herman Drent in the Netherlands, oh. so it is sort of a fake name oh um Yeah, so he moved to Clarksburg, West Virginia, and then his MO was that he pretended to be an Oklahoma oil stock promoter. And then would put up ads in Lonely Hearts magazine, which was sort of would be like a precursor to like dating profiles, I guess. And say, like, oh, well, I'm a a European man who made his fortunes out west, and I'm just looking to settle down and why don't you come out to my uh shack in the woods and I'll murder you <laughs> and take your money. <laughs> and, uh, I guess cuz it was the 30s uh well 20s and 30s that it was much much easier to pull that off. Yeah, right. But it has a similar so sort of similar character enough and then the same kind of thing that you know he eventually gets caught the extent of his crimes. Is uh, finally realized, and the local community goes into like lynch mob fury. Yeah, calling him, you know, the Bluebeard of West Virginia, oh. and and all that. And then they try to, like in the movie, they try yeah. to um, break him out of jail to hang him themselves, and mm. you know, all that. So, in any event, then um, Davis Grubb uh, wrote this. wrote this while writing this book. Was apparently in a bar, some in some rural bar doing research, and saw a guy there who had like a really bad energy around him. And he had love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. Oh, wow. And so then Grubb was like, okay, that's part of my, that guy freaked me out so much in that bar that then what if i use that thing that freaked me out so much about him and put it with this sort of other character who's based on a real killer and
0: yeah.
1: made this really i never realized how iconic a film villain this is if like because this is where the love and hate tattoo thing comes from yeah even if it was some guy in a random west virginian bar who actually had the tattoos in reality the reason we've any of us have seen that in media yeah. or on people, punk yeah. guys, metal guys, whatever, is because of this. Mm, yeah. And that was crazy to really like, really? <laughs> How did I not know that? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, it's, yeah, this is I know whether or not Alan Moore has a passport, and <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> oh, Because <you did? laughs> I just finished reading a fucking 150-page interview with him. <laughs> Uh, the, he doesn't have a passport. He used to, and he currently doesn't. He <laughs> <laughs> could just get a new one. <laughs> yeah, he can just get a new one, but he doesn't see the point. <laughs> but yeah, so somehow I know that. Yeah. And I didn't know, oh, the love-hate tattoo thing was from one specific source?
0: <laughs> okay. Well, you got to love that uh, there's always information that can sneak up on us. Keeps us on our
1: toes. Yeah, (laughs) no, it is much better than being like, "Oh, I know everything." (laughs) That sucks. (laughs) I didn't know that either,
0: but I I would. That makes sense then, because I mean, how how prevalent in the fifties or even before that, you know, were like knuckle tattoos?
1: Even tattoos in general, like like visible tattoos, it's a pretty like. It's a pretty ballsy move. Yeah, you know, to be like posing as a you know he poses as a preacher, as an upstanding, morally superior man, but then has this kind of obvious yeah red flag for people, genteel fifties people or forties or whenever to be like, wait, we're not used to seeing people with tattoos, right? Certainly not just hate <laughs> yeah. on your hand. <laughs> like Yeah. So th- I, I, I
0: liked that about his character. It kind of showed that he was, how clever he was at being a con man because he probably got the love and hate tattoo before he came up with the preacher character. Like, this is what I assume, you know, that he got it because he was just a brawler of some kind or he just didn't, who knows why, you know, or he was high or something. And yeah. He, and he's... Like, oh man, you know, who knows? But then when he went into Preacher character, you know, you got to think on your toes. Why why do you have these tattoos, Preacher? And, he, and then he that whole story where he's like, love and hate are locked in battle, you know, and he grips his hands together. And he's like, and then he he uses it to like mesmerize these people, you know, and it was like truly clever and yeah just shows the depth. But then I love at the end... He does it to Miss Cooper, and she's, she's just not like, having she's it. She's not having it. She's just like, "What? Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> you know, and yeah. it's just like clearly doesn't give a shit. I loved it though, man, because he he was like he started up with the same. So he was like, in the moment when he started the love hate story, he's like. You might be wondering why I have these on my hands here. Let me tell you. And she's like, "No, I don't give a shit. Who
1: are you?" You know, yeah. But
0: like, <laughs> yeah. But his excitement to tell the story kind of betrayed him a little bit. He was it showed yep. it showed him as being kind of a simple a simpler dude than we think. You know,
1: his yeah. Tricks,
0: his tricks are less dimensional. Like early in this st- in the movie, he does it to um, the first like the first time he does it. He does it to the Ma and pa. Uh, who run the store?
1: The spoons.
0: Oh, spoons! Yeah, the spoon. The old spoon couple. And spoon the, man. Uh, spoon man. <laughs> spoon man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chris Cornell was hanging in the corner, mm. <laughs> drinking a soda. Uh, but <laughs> but he does it, and he he does it. It's so clearly like his confidence is like there, and he's like. He starts it off, but he starts it the exact same way the second time. But it's yeah. just not believable because we've already seen it. And then Miss Cooper just like knocks him down, you know? And that was pretty satisfying yeah. to see him kind of like just be this weaker character because he was before that, he was pretty, pretty
1: monstrous. Like, and he feels sort of unstoppable. Yeah, right. Exactly. In, you know, he feels like he has this massive presence and this like charisma and this uh, I mean I think like uh, probably for a lot of people, but the like sort of charismatic Southern preacher man mm. is one of the most effectively frightening oh yeah <laughs> uh, things yeah, you know, in the sort of generally modern, uh best <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. And I'm thinking about <laughs> yeah. like, did you ever watch that show Carnival? No, I never watched that. I it's pretty good though, right? It's really good. Yeah, fuck. I've it's, been uh, meaning to watch yeah. that. But go on. You should check it out. It's it's really that's like my wife Annalise was uh really into that when it aired and I, I didn't watch it until then after we'd met, she was like, you have to watch this. Like it's and so she had the DVDs and it's also one of those not to get sidetracked on Carnival, but it's one of those shows where like it got canceled before uh, the whole story, you know, was able to play itself out. Oh, and so it sort of entered in like, um, you know, like Firefly or like a number yeah. of other TV series where people are like, "Oh man, it never got its due." Yeah, and so a few years, well, maybe ten years ago, the creator whose name I'm forgetting said like, "Okay." It's definitely not getting made, so like I'm gonna just tell everybody what was gonna happen. Mm. And you're like, "Oh my god, I'm so glad you didn't get to do this." Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, like, oh, this was gonna get stupid.
0: Oh, really? Fuck.
1: (laughs) Like, you were gonna ruin your own show. So it's for the best that Uh, this got canceled.
0: uh, That's funny. Oh
1: (laughs) shit. That's yeah.
0: So we we dodged the bullet now it's just our yeah. imagination. We didn't get the uh like Game of Thrones treatment on it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like we we can just imagine like we we we've, we've gotten enough of a world that we can imagine where these characters go and never actually have to see it get ruined. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. but uh yeah, Carnival, one of the main characters um not necessarily cleanly black and white antagonistic but definitely like a fearsome character is uh is a you know tent revival preacher in the in during the depression uh played by Clancy Brown who's just just awesome and has such a good and so now again having seen Night of the Hunter I'm like fuck so that was part of his character was definitely drawing on this mm. yeah like that's so so it does make me wonder how much of, like how how singularly Robert Mitchum defined the horror of the charismatic Southern preacher. Yeah. And I think the answer is, is very. Significantly,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, like, I was reading about the film and at the time, obviously, probably one of the reasons why it didn't get received so well was because of the religious aspect of it, which is, horrifically accurate <laughs> to things today it <laughs> seems
1: to get more accurate yeah right
0: like. and but today we have I don't know not all of us but I mean at least I can only speak personally that I like I'm not under the same sort of uh, fear existential or no spiritual fear mm-hmm. you know from the church and things like that you know but back then Christianity was pretty fucking powerful you know. It had to be the premier power of pretty much everything. I mean, like, I, I don't know. You're, it's probably the, I don't know what the ratio of Christianity to other religions in America would have been, you know?
1: Probably pretty heavily skewed towards yeah. Christianity and Protestant Christianity, I think. Yeah, just particularly.
0: Yeah, 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 right. And this kind of goes in that, this has that Protestant, uh, what would you call it, Baptist or something kind of vibe to feels,
1: it? Feels Baptist to me. Oh, yeah. I always, like, in my, you know, sort of uh, middlingly informed view of the sort of Protestant landscape is, like, yeah, that's all the really scary ones, right? Yeah, right. That's like yeah. the yeah. the especially scary ones, that's the Baptist end of the spectrum. Yeah. Like, okay.
0: Well what that's... is that what is the Westboro Baptist? Is that it?
1: Yeah, yeah those are those guys.
0: Yeah, I mean I, they're particular they're like enemy number one for that kind of scary religious yeah. ideology. So Well
1: and I think by like that it seems like there's that end of the you know I've at least heard it called like charismatic Christianity, but that mm. idea that it's like that it has a lot to do with the personality of the preacher and the emotional aspect of Dude. the the service that it's yeah. it's not where say something like Catholicism and then by extension Anglicanism, which while being the first the first Protestant movement, doesn't seem to have as much in common with what to me, Feels like the very specifically American yeah. Protestantism, but where those those churches seem to—that's very clearly ritualistic. Yeah. That's about there is a very proper way that this happens. We go; it can only happen in this space with that person leading it. Yeah, in this order with these ritual implements and right. vestments, and and that then. But this charismatic thing is like I I don't need anything but the fire of God within yeah, me. Right. You know, and I can be in a field, in a tent, in a field yeah. in West Virginia, calling out to the Lord and like you feel the spirit and yeah. you feel the and and the fires of hell are rising yeah. up out of the and it's right, just right. like, oh God, this is horrifying. Yeah, it's like, like pure this is. like the energy is
0: unleashed in this in this folk landscape too. So yeah which is is cool when it's positive folk folk energy released is cool when it's like dancing and and people getting together music there, and, and, and music yeah. and joy and celebration but when it's anger and and like especially like really lofty ideas of spirit and religion and stuff this starts to get way scarier when you're like oh maybe the like the rituals of those other churches actually sort of hone or help contain the energy in a proper circuit or something you know yeah like yeah you you feel a little bit like oh okay i can i can take my time with getting to these heightened states of of uh, of consciousness or of spirit or something you know whereas yeah you go to some tent you know in west virginia in the in the 40s or 50s or whatever people are just speaking in tongues or dancing around with snakes and shit you know it's like yeah. holy shit what is going on you know it's
1: it's it's quite scary you know yeah and it feels like you know it's uh not to i mean okay i don't not that i am not do i care i don't know there is something <laughs> that like the the charisma of a fire and brimstone Southern Baptist, whatever it is we're calling this stuff, preacher. I just cannot help but f- but see the resemblance to Hitler. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that just like the emotional yeah. intensity. Yeah, right. Of someone like Hitler, that like, despite the stereotypical associations of German efficiency and all that stuff, and despite the definitely aesthetically more aligned with something like Catholicism yeah. aesthetics of national socialism, the personality yeah. of a dictator like Hitler was absolutely down to a charismatic appeal yeah. to the emotions, the deep festering <laughs> fucking emotions yeah. of the people.
0: Yeah. He just drew it out of you in some way.
1: Yeah. Through and it does, like- it feels like sorcery.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. These, it feels like a dark, sorcery Yeah, that this person is able to conjure an entire atmosphere into being, suck you into it, Yeah, make you complicit. You're speaking in tongues now. You feel the power of the spirit. You feel, now go out into the world yeah. and make that spirit real. Yeah. And you can say, okay, well, I'm not going to say all these preachers. I'm not actually comparing every charismatic preacher to Hitler. <laughs> um, I'm sure there are Plenty of cases where it is completely well-meaning and uh, doesn't go in that direction. Maybe not plenty, maybe a couple of cases. <laughs> but um, where it's like, "Hey, no, feel that spirit. That's great. Now go out there and be a better man." And okay, sure. But you're the point would be that you're you're in you're you're fucking with something really powerful. Yeah and if you don't know the nature of that this spirit that's you know you got the spirit in you is like is that spirit fascism <laughs> is is that spirit or is it brotherly love cuz i don't really know right yeah. well you're you know you're very good at selling these people yeah. basically anything
0: yeah that's the true so, horror behind this stuff is the it's not the energy i mean energy raw energy to get yourself into a heightened state like like a whirling dervish or something like that, you know, or to do it in some mystical sense for personal empowerment. That sounds awesome. You know, I mean, I'm into that shit, I guess.
1: Like, Oh, I mean, yeah, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. And because it seems totally healthy, but it, in this type of context in Baptist, you know, old school Baptist, a tent preacher or what, you know, whatever you'd call them, um, It's scary because there is always the enemy, the satanic enemy, you know, which we've just been battling since then. You know, we still battle today (laughs) in in its own forms, you know, and yeah, if if you didn't have it, dude, I'd fucking, if you were just like, dude, I just fucking really love to just get hyped up and start making noises with my mouth in some language, and I just fucking love snakes, dude, you know? I'd be like, Yeah, oh, that this sounds great. This dude's cool, man, he's just kinda crazy. Like, you know, I'll hang every once in a while. That <laughs> sounds like Alan Moore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like- right, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, but it's just that. it's And the, actually, in the movie, I thought it was amazing how that was framed because I assume this was probably one of the first times this happened in cinema and again probably a reason why it wasn't received very well when it came out because it was very clear that oh this this preacher is using christianity as a weapon of manipulation and he does it yeah. to um the the mother of the two kids the two protagonist kids i forgot her name it's uh i don't know
1: it's it's shelly winters is the actress mm. I kept getting distracted by how much she looks like um Oh god, now I'm forgetting the woman's name. Um Captain Marvel? Oh, uh Bree Larson. Bree Larson. Yeah. I just kept being like Brie Larson oh. is in this movie from 1955. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> That's conspiracy?
0: No. Oh. <laughs> no. Um
1: <laughs> call David Ike. <laughs>
0: No, like uh, the first time she comes into contact with his true character.
1: Yeah, on their wedding night. On,
0: yeah, where she's like, "Hey, we, like we can we can bang because yeah, yeah, that's what you do when you get married. <laughs> We're married.
1: Why on earth would we have gotten married if we weren't going to do that? Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> but then he spins it in this you know in this way where he's basically like, "You're a sinner." and the whole your whole purpose in me coming here and you meeting me has been divined by god to to allow you to not be a sinner you know to break you from your wicked ways so that you can repent and stuff like that and it's so effective on her that when it gets to the scene that's her actual murder which by the way we should talk about cinematically is like one of the fucking it's coolest scenes it's unreal I, that scene came on and i was like holy shit, this is like beyond cinema. This is amazing, yeah. dude. But just, yeah. to, just to say, he basically, she she knows that he's lying to her and she's so brainwashed by him and by the, the idea of of like her own sin, you know? The Christian brainwashing that she's like, I know that you are bad, but I can't under I can't think that God would send anyone else. She's like, you were sent here for a reason. And she allows him to kill her. She doesn't put up yeah. any fight at all. He just takes the knife out and he's holding it above her and she's just completely calm because she's so brainwashed into thinking that yeah. this is what was a, like b- basically was deemed it was supposed to happen because God made it to happen but he's the one who put that in her head you know yeah exactly so it's like i was like holy shit that's dark man you know and how often do you yeah. see, do you see that stuff of like brainwashing with in religious contexts or cults you know and things like that like that was pretty intense i thought
1: it is a really like it it does feel like it's a it's a very um it's both just a well executed sort of binding together of um like, personal abuse, abusive relationship, gas what, what we now understand as gaslighting, like, right. those sorts of yeah. things. Um, but a, it's both just a very good kind of equation of that stuff with uh, religious abuse. Yeah. <laughs> but also, yeah, has to be a very early instance of that equation of yeah. saying, hey, look at this guy and how he's able to control and manipulate the people around him with his personality and with the strength of his, you know, expressed convictions, uh, sound like anybody else sound like maybe a preacher sound like maybe a government sound like maybe a, uh, whatever. Like this has to be a pretty early instance of just going full out and saying like, he's got, he is a fucking preacher.
0: Yeah. People do. (laughs) And this is what he's doing. Yeah. Right. Um,
1: Especially the lights
0: on, yeah. Especially for that that culture in particular, like American culture, right? Um, yeah, because they were so, uh, probably this population or the people who would of these areas, you know, it just so so confident in the word of God, you know, and that the people who represent that priests and preachers who represent that as being connected to something more holy which should theoretically then purify them you know
1: well and it the thing that sort of seems like one of the things that's always seemed strange to me like uh when thinking about like when thinking about the 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 protestant deal in general which has always seemed like the whole thing is fucking weird to me but like mm-hmm. especially strange because the fundamental idea of of somebody saying like okay so this this is me humoring the 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 christian perspective and saying okay so there is you know that God and there is his son Jesus and this whole story is fundamentally true. Okay, fine. But it's 1400 and everything, the only way that I can interface with that is through a book written in an ancient language and a bunch of guys in specific clothing with titles and a whole hierarchy going back to a main guy in Rome. So there's all these steps, Mm. specific ritual things, specific all this sort of arcane stuff that goes beyond me. So I'm basically just being asked not only, hey, trust in God's divine plan and the realization of all things in eternity, but also trust in this guy. Yeah. And his superior and his superior all the way up to the Pope or something like that. So I totally sympathize with the idea that somebody would say, that sounds like bullshit. Mm. That sounds like uh, really easily corrupted. That sounds like uh, if, why does this book only exist in a language no one speaks? Yeah. Why can we not read this book for ourselves for ourselves? Yeah. Why do I have to go to a specific building to talk about this stuff? Why can't I do this in my own home? Why can't we do this in a field? Like, if God is everywhere, why isn't God in my house? Why isn't yeah. God in the field? Like, yeah. this is all stuff that seems perfectly reasonable yeah. to me, um, and so it seems quite strange how, as far as I can tell, the Protestant impulse was to get away from what's, what's basically the idolatry of Catholicism, mm. the idea that then the priest, the cardinal, the bishop, the cathedral, you have all these sort of idols standing in for the real object of your devotion, which is, you know, the unembodied God in all things or yeah, I don't know, something yeah. like that. And so you have this impulse to to say to call idolatry at all that, and then what you end up doing, specifically in America, with this branch of charismatic evangelical whatever, the the seeds of Billy Graham, the seeds of megachurches, the is all of this stuff, is actually like quadrupling down on idolatry. Yeah, is making it extremely about that specific guy. Yeah that it's now it's no 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 this isn't even about the priest in the catholic hierarchy this is about this one very special individual <laughs> yeah with big weird teeth who's on the stage <laughs> yeah getting us all to feel the spirit and it's like wow this became the most like obviously corrupted <laughs> yeah just kind personality of cult it's kind of funny it's
0: like it's like you being a teenager and being like i'm never going to be my fucking dad <laughs> yeah. and then being worse than your dad when you
1: <laughs> yeah not only yeah. have you discovered oh i'm my dad but your dad is like i didn't mean this yeah yeah right <laughs> Your
0: but dad's that, like don't yeah. don't
1: implicate me in this
0: yeah i mean that's interesting though when when you say that because like think about how many thousands of years we had it when just a small group of people actually had the the understanding to accurately read these books and Mm -hmm. and just the the pure um repetition of church culture that goes along all those years of just like abiding to these uh you know the like the clergymen abiding to like these people in power because you just don't know any better i mean how long have we had textual analysis like in as a like as like a study of the Bible to determine like its actual sort of accuracy and stuff. How how far back does that go? Maybe a hundred years at most. Maybe I don't even know.
1: Well, I know that I know that like that that there is a very long-standing tradition of all of that for Jews. Oh, okay. Uh, as regards the their part of the Bible. Yeah, Um,
0: but for like the New Testament and like— But
1: for New Testament stuff, my guess is that it seems like something that would have happened in the Enlightenment. Mm. Oh, okay. It seems like something that would have have started happening in—well, I mean, would have started happening along with the general sort of Protestant— reform oh, okay. thing that it was yeah, part of so the same back. kind of but even still you know maybe 500 years yeah we also might i might be totally off base on that
0: yeah
1: and it might go back further but i think that 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 the sort of development of all that has something to do with Protestantism in general and the idea of like oh we should interpret this rather than yeah yeah
0: taking it on word yeah I guess I just I I think now it's interesting to be here now and all of the academic studies that we have and all of the cross-referencing of manuscripts and papyri that we've found you know yeah like we have it's like blossomed it keeps blossoming into like more and more understanding of how this book is interpreted and
1: stuff and i think the thing that is much newer is the idea of somebody analyzing uh religious texts outside of the context of religion
0: uh, just just uh, academically yeah,
1: yeah. like non believers because yeah. when i say that like the, the kind of mm. this examination of, like, scripture would have started happening in the Enlightenment, those still would have been basically believers. believers yeah. You know, I, I, people, Isaac Newton is often, like, because he's such a father of science, people forget that he was also, like, full-on Christian. Yeah, totally. And has, has a massive amount of writing about, like, calculating the date of the apocalypse and all this sort of stuff. And so you get you do get that kind of thing starting to happen much much earlier, but um, it's still within the framework of like i I still buy I still buy all this, yeah, I just think maybe this interpretation is the the more accurate one, where what seems much more modern is the idea that'd be like, what if this is just a book? What if it's not?" You know, what if this is just a book written by people and this other book is also just a book written by different people and we can just look at them without having to believe in it that would be much more mm. modern i think
0: yeah that's what i that's what i think and i don't know how far that that goes the sort of secular view of uh, like objective study of where these texts right. come from uh which is pretty interesting. I've I've read a couple books by Bart Ehrman. Do you know Bart Ehrman? He's like a pretty popular New Testament scholar and stuff. Okay. And it's they're really fucking interesting because, um, like, one thing that I took away that was that I thought was really interesting was generally as a rule of thumb, certain things they cannot find out. Right? We just don't know because we don't have sufficient evidence. Um, But there are certain things that we can sort of apply general rules of thumbs to sort of get squeeze more accuracy out of it. So we can't say that an older, if you have two manuscripts of the same book or something from the New Testament, we can't say the older one is actually more accurate because it might not actually be accurate. It depends on the source that it came from, you know? And you could have a newer text that was on a pure source or something that went through more iterations, but is actually of, of more accuracy to an original translation than something that was just mistranslated once early on, you know? So it makes it really difficult to judge the accuracy of scribes and how they translated the books. But one rule of thumb that they were talking that he was talking about in his book was if it's weirder. And makes less sense. It's probably more accurate to the original. <laughs> because you'd think that it's more, it's more probable that scribes are going to try and change things to make it accessible to a community so that it picks up. So, or to just be like, oh, this is what it's more fitting to our culture now, so it must be this, you know? Yeah. Like, scribes would change things to make it, and adapt it, and make it more comfortable for the community. Like, it would be less advantageous to spread the word by making it weirder. <laughs> it's yeah. more fucking out there, <clears throat> you know, because people would be like, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. They will gravitate towards the things that... uh, pander to them, you know. Yeah. So uh people studying New Testament New Testament translations will f- actually look at it and just be like is this fucking weirder? <laughs> so then okay, we could probably go on that this was m- maybe a more accurate translation than the other one, you know. Um
1: Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's
0: pretty interesting. I mean, it's 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 smart to think that way. And who knows, we might revise that as we go along. It might not always be that, you know, we might get more evidence. Well, sure. Yeah. Um, But it makes sense. It makes sense. But that type of analysis is happening with the Bible now, you know, whereas at these times of preachers, they were taking these things super literally, you know, and in these Bart Ehrman books too, they're, they're awesome because he'll show some things where um, you can see where, Oh the these four paragraphs were probably of one source and then these two were tacked on even in the same book like the book right. of Matthew something's just tacked on you know um but these preachers in southern southern preachers in you know not to be picking on all the southern preachers you know <laughs> but yeah just, but the, the the preachers of this um uh, in the context of this film you know
1: right uh I don't think we have to worry about alienating our our Southern Baptist listenership. <laughs> I think, yeah, uh, I think yeah. we're fine. The one that <laughs> that one listener is like, no more. I'm dead. the one listener who every time we've said anything anti-Christian, he thought they must just mean Catholics, right? <laughs> Episcopalians, <laughs> Lutherans—they can't possibly yeah. mean me, yeah. <laughs> like.
0: <laughs> but, <laughs> But those anyway. those preachers, yeah, they're they're not taking they're taking it as that this is a complete book, complete word of God. Everything is in the in its right place. So, I'm going to take it as literally as possible, you know. Um, yeah. And then that's where you get these these wild interpretations and wild sort of uh the scary this that's where a lot, a lot of the scariness comes out, you know. It's just Definitely. Not understanding and how it, this stuff works.
1: It does make me think, like, because even though I I sympathize with the um the what I'm calling the sort of fundamental Protestant impulse of basically in rage terms, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, you know, like <laughs> fuck the church. Like yeah. that that fundamental feeling is like, yeah, totally with that. Like, I'll read the book myself. I don't need yeah. you to interpreted for me, but the the trick there, of course, is, okay, fine, so the Bible's in in English now, and uh, peep, it's the Wycliffe Bible, it's in English, all the British people can read it regardless of, they don't have to have learned Latin, they don't have to be a fancy man or a member of the clergy anymore. But uh, the Bible being in English doesn't necessarily make you any smarter.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Um, you can still fundamentally be rather stupid but but capable of reading this book yeah and so then the idea that saying okay so everybody can read the book and everybody can interpret it and everybody can you know come up with their own thing is like well i really hope you're uh smart and thoughtful and Mm. uh able to look at complex things from uh, multiple uh no you're you're not you're <laughs> a full, very literalist black and white think oh great i'm really glad we translated the book into a language you could understand <laughs> shit <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, which is not me advocating for um decreased literacy <laughs> or like uh keep the people keep the the dumb people from the books or something what i'm if, if anything what i'm saying is uh well yeah you've Translating the Bible into English was a was a was one move, and a move that should have accompanied it was uh we should also probably educate people. Mm. We should also probably make sure that if we're gonna let all the commoners read this book that that they're also just generally well educated. Yeah. Cause if they're now gonna have to wrestle with these issues themselves without the strict structure of a Catholic hierarchy or an Anglican hierarchy or whatever, this could get into some really weird territory. Yeah. If these aren't the if these people don't have a baseline education. If if these people are just as whatever as they were as Catholics, they're liable to get fleeced by somebody who's smarter than them. Yeah. Like Robert Mitchum. Dude, right,
0: because I his character is interesting in that way because I kind of convinced that he doesn't believe any of it. It's he's probably an atheist in a in a in his in his way, but he's just using it. Purely because it's a great tool for manipulation.
1: The the praying out loud in the beginning does feel somewhat, um, Um, yeah, like like jokey that he's like, yeah, right. Oh, hey, God, thanks for all. Like, it feels like an atheist prayer, like a nihilist. You know, yeah,
0: because he even did. He he says something in the beginning where he's like, you know, God, I I don't even know how you feel about me murdering widows. (laughs) <laughs> maybe yeah. we have a different interpretation. Like he's is kind of joking around too. Yeah, not taking it seriously. Maybe. Yeah,
1: yeah. But yeah, I do really like the. Um, I mean, there's there's so much to like about this movie, and um, one of the things I like that I think comes across, yeah, right away, like you're saying, in that you know, no. Drawn out exposition, no real mystery about the guy's motivations, just yep, that's yeah. what this is. Yeah. Is that there's there's a persistent thing in um there's a persistent thing in, especially in true crime, but also in sort of the serial killer genre in fiction. And I could um, I could probably get Annalise down here and have her give a much more Succinct summary of all this kind of stuff than I could because she used to work on a lot of TV shows about that kind of stuff, mm. and so has like a decade, a literal decade of experience with all this. But there is a, um, well, I, I should just say that I'll, you know, she would be, she would like everybody to know that she hates that genre, <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was just a job. It was just a job. Has no interest in. Uh, those fields, but there, there is this like persistent idea in in the about serial killers in general that they are fascinating, that they are yeah. interesting, that there is this idea of getting into the mind of a killer and yeah, what what is it that motivates them? And I think especially somebody like in in the world of fiction, you know, something like The Silence of the Lambs and a character like Hannibal Lecter yeah. being so mesmerizing and so and being a very interesting character um but that kind of builds up this this aura around the whole idea of like these serial killers and what does it mean and where does it come from and then you get the psychologizing idea of like and the whole notion of like profilers of like where does this come from how can we spot the like there's this just this whole vast field of studying serial killers either uh criminologically or sort of pop culturally and i I should find it and put it in the show notes because dennis cooper who's written a lot about serial killers um said something sort of to this effect that in reality there is nothing interesting about serial killers (laughs) (laughs) that they are often extremely boring (laughs) and the most interesting thing about them is that they've killed a lot of people yeah And that there is no moment, this taps into the James Elroy vibe too, but like that there is no thing that explains it. There is no childhood moment that we go back to and say, oh, if this had all been different, then Jeffrey Dahmer would have been a nice boy and Ed Gein would have been a nice boy and whatever. That in the final assessment, this was a murderer. Yeah. Full stop. That's it. And so what I really like about the way this movie's lack of backstory or or character development for Robert Mitchum in that sort of direction is that it just establishes this brute fact of this is a misogynistic serial killer. Yeah. That's it. Uh, yeah. We will not justify him. He yeah. will not have a story where we say, "Oh, see, the world made him like this." Yeah. It's just no, that's just what he does.
0: That's also interesting because the ending of the movie basically they just cut him off once he gets once he gets caught by the police and arrested you don't see him anymore the last like yeah. five ten minutes of the movie maybe is just of miss cooper now taking care of the kids and like a happy it's kind of like becomes that happy christmas carol it kind has of, the music yeah, and, yeah yeah and then she does the classic oh uh, the children abide kind of thing you know uh yeah like but the townspeople then go off. They do that thing that you that you talked about. The writer, you know, of the the real life character. The townspeople get all, uh, you know, torches and and pitchforks, and they storm the the city hall and the police department and stuff after him. But they they all you see is this kind of slight shot of Robert Mitchum's character being driven away in a car. But they don't give him any. They don't give him like a final like. Last thing yeah. on the gallows or anything, you know, no, like justified. He he ends in this really super weak way, you know.
1: Yeah, like actually,
0: Miss Cooper shoots him. I
1: think she shoots him in like with with. Uh, I don't really know anything about guns, but like uh, bird shot oh or yeah, whatever yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, that's yeah. you know, yeah,
0: yeah. It's like or like rock salt or something like that.
1: Yeah, it's something like she doesn't. Obviously, he's essentially he's wounded but fine. But, yeah. So she didn't just like shoot him in the face with a big ass bullet. Or yeah. Whatever. But <laughs> but yes, she does shoot him. Yeah.
0: And then he gets. Then the police come and storm, and then they they take him away. But but yeah, no, like you were saying, his he had this reign of terror, which was truly terrifying in some parts. You know, like oh yeah, the song that he would sing you know? Yeah. And they're like amazing scene where the kids are running on away on their own and they're in the barn. They like, so they escape on the boat and it's like their
1: dad's boat.
0: Yeah. Which is sort of this odyssey like kind of thing, you know? Um, And then they, they take a, they take a break. They're like, we can't sleep in the boat tonight. We need some like proper rest. So we need to go to this. They like find a barn off the river um, which is the beautiful scenery because the barn is cocked in this weird, it's like so clearly like this strange painted set, you know? Yeah. It's surreal and weird. And I guess what I found out as a side note is that they did that on purpose to kind of showcase the mind of a child.
1: I found that too. Did you? Yeah. yeah.
0: And like, this is probably one of those things that, everyone knows because they know this movie <laughs> but <laughs> but then the kids they go up into the barn and they're sleeping there and in the morning they start to hear his song and he's just like riding slowly riding the countryside on his horse singing this terrifying song of like the ever in the everlasting arms or whatever um, yeah which is supposed to be this joyous kind of song like oh joyful uh celebration of God, you know, but he's just using it. He's using it as a taunt almost to like, um, that was. I wonder if it's
1: a, I wonder if it's a bit much to say, what do you think Cormac McCarthy thought about this movie? Yeah, dude, totally. Cause I start to feel like, you know, having just read Blood Meridian last year or the year before, I don't know what year it is, but sometime relatively recently, I'm thinking like, that's obviously much more. Uh, that's not a movie from the 1950s. It's yeah. Much, <laughs> yeah. Much harsher in a lot of ways, but thinking, mm, you know? Yeah. Right? Cormac McCarthy would have been the right generation to probably have been. Really yeah, he was a much, he was a much older dude. So. Yeah.
0: I mean, he also has like, he has. Like, um, child of God, which is sort of about Appalachian sort of uh, poverty and the mind, yeah. of, mind of someone who's not developed, you know, being slightly well, isn't evil.
1: even like I think the kid in Blood Meridian is from I want to say Tennessee or West Virginia, mm. not West Virginia, but somewhere in the general, oh, yeah, that kind of region. So maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, um. That just occurred to me, like yeah, you know there 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 is another uh, feeling yeah. that like the McCarthy, because yeah, like I mean you said already, like the how you see this movie and then then a ton of Cohen brothers stuff, you just feel like oh my god, they obviously loved this yeah. movie, yeah, and so then from the Cohens, I was like yeah, because he has that feeling of like No Country, yeah, Robert Mitchum and that that kind of implacable villain character feels very Cohen-y to me now. And then from, well, yeah, but but actually Cormac McCarthy too, that came after this. So I wonder what he thought.
0: Yeah. Cormac McCarthy, like, just as a side, like, yeah, he does pretty brutal stuff, but he always has this kind of like softness to him like Cormac McCarthy's all of his books are like pretty deal like dealing with the softness and masculinity they're like Mm. they're like cowboy books but like where you expect cowboy books to just be like strong ass men you know they're cowboy books with strong ass men that have to Grapple with their like femininity in some way, you know? Mm -hmm. Like they're always, they always have to deal with their softness or something. Like, especially like No Country for Old Men, like the sheriff is like, yeah, he's like this older dude, you know? So this movie was interesting too because it was the male energy was the evil energy. Like the softness was the predominant sort of savior in this movie. Like, Miss Cooper, for instance, is the hero character. And she's this older, who knows, older widow or something. It, it's suggested that she lost her son for some yeah. reason or the other. You know, She's this older woman, and she's the savior of these kids. Or the kids themselves, who are both just super young and soft and innocent in their way, having to fight through. like The main sort of, what would you call a cowboy hard male character is the the monster the evil guy you know um yeah and so i don't know yeah that that could be like a comparison to the cormac mccarthy sort of style you know of This setting. yeah also the rule setting i also i came to think that i keep saying southern but it's possible it started did it is it is it, is it West Virginia set the movie? It's West Virginia. Is it? Okay, because I kind of also got the sense it was sort of near Ohio or something. I think there was a reference, or is it just
1: the- Because the Ohio River river. runs through West Virginia. Oh, okay.
0: So that's why I was thinking it, yeah.
1: West Virginia is one of those states that, like, I think for the longest time, the only reason I even knew West Virginia existed was because of the Mothman. Oh, really? Yeah. Was just like, oh, that's where the Mothman stuff happened, was Mm -hmm. in West Virginia, and so it, it was one of those states that I feel like, um, I mean, Delaware is certainly the state I think about the least. But I think West Virginia is the one that I forget about the most.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: And whenever I look at where West Virginia is, I'm like, really there? Because mm. it's right next to Ohio. Is it? Yeah. I'm like, West Virginia borders Pennsylvania and Ohio. So it's pretty north then. It's. I think it is the northernmost southern state.
0: Okay, but it is the southern state, yeah.
1: And I think if I if I remember right, it is also the. I think it is the least populated state. Okay. Um, where, yeah, like it's it it is almost entirely rural, and uh, really poor still. Mm, I think. But uh, but yeah, I do know the the Ohio River Valley is like a major, you know looks very beautiful, um, part of West Virginia. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's a, but there's a bunch of other things with just like from the, the, cause it's very easy of course for us to get off on like a whole thing about, uh, some religious thing yeah, <laughs> and not talk about the movie <laughs> aspects yeah. of the movie. Um, like you, you mentioned already just like the scene, the, I guess it's the only murder scene in the movie, um, mm. but when Robert Mitchum kills the mom, and but just like there, there are so many things, so many shots in this that are that feel like expressionist, like German expressionism, that yeah. feel like uh, maybe not to the like Caligari extent, but that do feel like you know this is already in the fifties, throwing back to you know the thirties. In some of its style, and in a sort of like, yeah, that that kind of heightened sense of drama. But it, it does it really, really nicely without it feeling like when it shifts into that mode, it's it's never, it's never jarring. Yeah. So like thinking the at least the first one I noticed was after the, you know, so they get married and then there's the the kind of wedding night uh, denial thing and you know no you know i'm here to look after those kids and save your soul and keep you on the right path
0: right
1: and then it then it cuts to you know it's like clearly meant to be in a a tent revival scenario but it's it's you know the mom in like a i actually want that sweater that she's wearing but like <laughs> yeah looks like a nice sweater but it's you know buttoned all the way up and yeah collar and whatever and she's standing by these light these fire lights and and you know proclaiming how she was lost and is now found and that whatever and the way that that shot is framed and the lighting and everything feels like this is this is from the Golem or something this <laughs> is from like this is from a much older much more expressionistic movie and then yeah the 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 scene in the bedroom when he kills her and the sort of like steeple yeah. in the lighting the the way they're the deep shadows and then this triangle of light yeah and how the room suddenly seems much bigger than it should be yeah. for the house they're in that there are these touches that that when you when you see them it, they feel like uh they do feel like extremely expressionistic in a movie that otherwise is pretty realistic it's like no, we're in a village, and there's the ice cream parlor, and there's yeah. the people, and there we're having a picnic, and then it shifts into this expressionistic mode, yeah. and it feels totally natural.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah that that scene was amazing. Like it does, it does, it comes on, and you don't like like you said, it naturally comes on. The scene begins, and it just feels like it should be, but then you sort of get enveloped in this like almost like hallucination it's so yeah like whoa and like then I found myself just staring at it like whoa this is beautiful this is crazy and he's like when she's talking and she's giving dialogue he's standing up so she's in the bed to paint the picture obviously Um, the shot is of the room and it has that big expressionistic sort of perfectly symmetrical sort of angled rooftop and the window to the right with the sun or the moonlight coming in through it shining on her and she's just laying in the bed with her arms crossed like in this sort of like religious devotion and he's standing over her and they're talking and he's like I I think it's when she first realizes oh you I know that you're lying to me and he like slaps her Aggressively. Yeah. And after he slaps her, he starts moving in this really sensual way. And like moving almost like what would you like almost like a ballerina or, or not a like uh what's it like, yeah, in this way where he's like sort of moving his arms and like feeling the the moonlight. He's like touching the light coming in through the window. And it's almost like he's tripping out in some way yeah and it might just be on the pure power of it because she's like i know that you're lying to me but i have to let you because it's god's will you know and he's almost like high on the power and twisting in the moonlight in this sensual, sort of weird way it's really mesmerizing it's fantastic yeah
1: yeah and then yeah yeah and then the oh the other one that that Oh, did you have something more about
0: that? Yeah, but she doesn't move a muscle the whole time. So it's kind of cool. He's twisting around and doing these, like, sort of fluid-like movements, like he's in some trance. And she is, like, sitting there, not moving a muscle. And in some ways, it's really wild because it almost gives the sense that she's in control. Like, or, or like he brainwashed her to such a degree that now she's, like, almost like telling him to do it like just yeah just kill me because it's god's will or something mm. and then she's not right. even surprised when he pulls out the knife and she's yeah. just like ready to take it it's really wild yeah
1: yeah like make like that that his part of his method is like making the victim believe this is what they want and yeah well well you made me do this yeah you know, yeah. which fits into feel does feel like that that fits very nicely into the the general sort of rhetoric of, you know, you're all whores and temptresses yeah. and whatever, and it's like, well, yeah, because you're making that happen. You're, yeah, yeah, you're the, the, the one making this yeah. this cycle begin. Like
0: that's the weirdness yeah. of his character. He probably does believe it, and in, in that moment, he may even believe. You know, like. See, this is exactly how it should happen. Like this is it keeps this, happening. It keeps happening. These horrors <laughs> keep wanting me to kill them, you know, or something like that. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And so then the 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 other the one that was really like just like fuck that's cool that's a cool shot for me was when the they're the sort of drunk uncle mm-hmm. guy finds
0: oh the her body?
1: body oh dude her body. Is fucking scary. It's really scary, yeah. and it's really cool. And yeah. it like, it's just like this is, yeah. So you know he find he's old man fishing on the boat. You know we see, we see her under, in a car. You know to tied up to weigh her down in the river, or lake, or whatever it is, and we see the fishing line trying to. Oh, it's getting stuck on the part of the car. Oh, what's going to happen? And then you know, the uncle just sees her through, like, the clearest water, which is another, like, fully unrealistic, like, wait, if that water is that clear, how did you not see that yeah. when you were rowing out there? I mean, how does everybody not see that? <laughs>
0: yeah, because that's, right, yeah.
1: That's, like, right there, but you're yeah. like, yeah, but that's not what we're doing. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, we're in expressionism land. That's not what this, yeah. it's not what this is. And so it's just, like, yeah, it's so haunting, and it's so, like... Just seeing her hair and the like kelp or whatever it would be. Yeah. This, the, the water grasses like swaying in the current and just her like waxy dead face. It's like,
0: I don't even know how they get, they got that. Like, did they have the actress sitting like in a water tank or down in some sort of water and then just having her just sort of sit still as long as she could or something? Or did they actually replicate
1: something? That's what I thought. Like at first I thought just sort of based on the the time period that I'm like, okay, they probably had had her in like really shallow water and just had her like, okay, hold hold your breath, hold real still, film it 30 seconds at a time or something. Yeah. But apparently it's uh it's a mask. Oh, it is. Apparently they made like a really detailed um like cast of her face. Oh. And then made a mask and sort of distorted it to make it look like, you know, a dead a dead version would.
0: Wow. So the mask probably just looks naturally looks like decomposition or something. It's just, yeah. So like yeah.
1: the the un un uh, like inaccuracies or failures in the mask would sort of be like, well, yeah, but she's a dead body in water, so yeah, yeah of
0: course. you know,
1: that's why it looks different.
0: Like when I saw that, it looked genuinely like a body you'd find in water. I, not that I have found yeah. a body in water before, but like <laughs> 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 but it's it it convinced me that that's what it would look like, you know, it looked re- well, and it realistic. does yeah,
1: it feels like there's there's a sort of call callback for us to like Lake Mungo, oh yeah, and the the you know the finding the daughter's body in that or and then from Lake Mungo on to like you know twin Peaks and the the, the other like uh dead women in water that we can think of from. <laughs> That's a category um, of uh of, of weird movies and yeah. TV shows and things like that. That it it totally fits in with that. And yeah. and despite being having come out uh what nearly 40 years before Twin Peaks, 50 yeah. years before Lake Mungo, looks just as realistic as either of those yeah. dead bodies.
0: That might have did. been the scene that made me think of Lynch, possibly mm. because of the the brutality of the body, and but all of the delicate, like, sort of setting up of the scene. And it's, like, yeah. painting-like nature. It was, yeah, it's just really beautiful.
1: But then there's also, like, thinking about the, the sort of painting thing is that, like, then the kids' odyssey down, down the river and yeah. these shots of, like, animals in the foreground. Yeah. You know, the big frog you know and then the kids going by down this that is another like this feels very storybook fairy tale illustration yeah kind of thing but it doesn't feel jarring it's amazing how yeah. it doesn't feel like the movie has suddenly shifted into wait weren't these kids like actually on the run from like a really scary murderer yeah. and why are we doing this fanciful thing with the big toad and with whatever but it just t- somehow totally works
0: yeah In some ways, that's kind of interesting because kids, like, do kids maintain the fear like adults would? Like, so if I was being chased by a murderer and I was on a boat as an adult, I'd be thinking like, oh, fuck, I got to make sure I get away from this dude. I got to plan on my route. I got to make sure, you know, like, I'd be, be thinking in a very practical way of how to escape. But do kids even have that? Kids, like... Are so mm. easily drifted into, you know, daydream and stuff like that, dude. And at the end, uh, is it Pearl? Pearl's the little girl, right? Yeah. At the end, when he, when the killer, when Robert Mitchum's character comes to Miss Cooper's place, Pearl runs up and hugs him. Yeah, and that's how that's how the confusion starts, like in the final like sort of battle. But I was like, "What are you doing, Pearl?" But she's like just a little girl, so she she doesn't know. She's just innocent, you know? So that whole boat scene of this drifting into this, like, beautiful, weird, calm thing is just, like, kids getting lost and, wait, what are we doing? <laughs> you know,
1: like, oh. Right, oh, we're on our boat yeah. now, okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, like, stuff like that, maybe. I well, and
1: even, know. like, the the way the boy, the 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 son, when the cops come and, and arrest Robert Mitchum, that yeah. he's, like, freaking out the way, it was in the beginning when they arrested yeah. his dad yeah and it's it's like just the the sort of like brute emotional response of just like this thing that's happening yeah again even though it's like you know your logical brain would say well shouldn't you be happy because that guy has been pursuing you yeah. and that guy killed your mom and that guy sucks like,
0: yeah right
1: but but to still be like no no cry like yeah. it's like well yeah cuz it's This, this isn't, this isn't reasonable.
0: Yeah. Oh, and also like, I don't know, kids, like adults have had time to really set up like more survival skills maybe or something. Like, but the trauma of seeing his dad being taken away hasn't had much time to develop maybe. So he's just, maybe he's literally seeing it as his dad again. Like his brain doesn't know the difference. So his just response goes back as if it's his dad and he's like oh shit it's the same thing you know this can't happen yeah. you know and he doesn't realize no this is a good thing which is kind of an interesting yeah. concept it's like the same trauma that he had in this context is actually good because it's freeing him from his pursuer but it still feels like pain to him because he only sees it as the it's the exact same event you know
1: Yeah it's the repetition of the yeah. thing that started this all yeah. not just the repetition of a trauma but of actually the trauma that started this whole thing the whole thing.
0: thing yeah right exactly you
1: yeah. know that and so it's it's really amazing how many of these like uh it's just an amazing movie i'm just like oh yeah <laughs> totally totally floored by it um totally glad it it feels like this is a second this will probably come up when we talk to steven next week uh but it it feels like this is it's the second time lately that i feel like i have dis, i have uh been made aware of something that has been sitting there in plain sight this entire time i didn't know what i was missing and then upon experiencing it i'm like how did i not know this was here <laughs> yeah. yeah um how did i not you know obviously like neither of us went to film you didn't go to film school before, Keller. That was I also did. music, right? <laughs> oh, you did. Okay. No, no,
0: no, no. I didn't go to I, like my my bachelor's was in music, but okay. I my first year of school was film. Okay. And I did film and I was like, ah, I don't like this, so I switched to music. But I did take yeah. I did take a bunch of film classes my first year.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so well, it still stands. Neither of us has a film degree right, or yeah. has made a, uh, you know, film our primary thing. But we've still been like we we both went to CalArts. We both lived in LA. We've known so many people in the film industry. We've known and like the, the that somehow this escaped us. Yeah, how did we not see this?
0: Yeah.
1: Is amazing, but but it is also truly amazing that it's like, you know, if you ever think you've seen it all, you ever think all the good movies have already been Yeah, right. You've already watched them a ton of times. Somehow two guys in their late 30s could have <laughs> missed who do a podcast about movies. <laughs> <laughs> missed Night of the Hunter for this long. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
0: um Yeah. Dude, like I want I do want to say something about like also just the the sound design and music is fucking awesome. There I I which scene I think it's might be the scene like right before it's I forgot what scene it is, but there's the music melds completely into some sort of like sound design drone. Mm. And I was like, this is crazy. This is something that I would I would see today and be like, oh, this is like a like from Sicario or something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know i was like yeah. this is crazy cool sound design that just comes out of nowhere and it's really hypnotizing and weird um and then yeah there's like all these different ways that music is used in this movie like uh like one of the one of them which was the the little girl starts singing on the boat in this like obviously like adult voice.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not her. It's I looked like, that up and yeah, it's somebody yeah. else. Singing. Yeah, it was just but, like this yeah.
0: amazing operatic voice comes out, you know, uh, uh, of this little girl. But <laughs> but it's like, I'm like, wow, this is crazy. This is super haunting and weird, you know? And then you even got like his s- song that's this calm kind of, you know, him. That he's singing, that's just striking terror into it's. He's basically calling out to let him know that, like, I'm around and I, yeah, you can't escape me, you know. And then he uses that at the end. He's singing
1: that with Miss Cooper. Oh, and then that God, their standoff is so good. Yeah,
0: dude, that and that how it starts too, because he's sitting on the tree stump singing, and she's sitting on the porch with a shotgun, and she starts singing along with him. And they're like duetting and stuff, and then the girl the the girl comes up with a candle that obscures his place, and Miss Cooper's like, Turn, "Put out the candle, put out the candle." And then when they put out the candle, he's gone. Yeah. And he's just like, and he's like, "Where the fuck did he go?" You know? It's like, "Oh man, this shit's so sick."
1: It was good. It's so good. Yeah. It's like, it's so good, and uh, yeah. The thing I had I. Wrote down about the music fairly early on was that it felt like this is where um, this this seems like the beginning of of like the Hans Zimmer um, mm. aesthetic, you yeah. know his sort of style of like, uh, yeah, and so that it it, it does feel very modern in a lot of ways. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, I think I I think I I thought of Hans Zimmer just because of the like uh, those sort of like. Blasts that kind of horn, mm. that that dramatic horn blast that did that feels like right. That's the Nolan, yeah, um, yeah, right, Inception horn thing. Yeah, <laughs> just fifty-five years before. Yeah,
0: I would like to um, see this movie in a theater, like, yeah, like on a big screen, or just at least on a, in a screen where I'm like enveloped in darkness and just watching it
1: yeah that would
0: be that would be really awesome uh i would i'm gonna seek that out
1: sometime. yeah i'm sure i mean it i guess one of the nice things about discovering like feeling like you've discovered a movie that's that's very um you know uh well regarded and everything is that the likelihood of finding like a revival theater that would be showing this is relatively high I yeah yes <laughs> yeah like that unlike thinking oh man i really want to watch lake mungo in a theater it's like yeah it's probably not going to happen <laughs> yeah right <laughs> like, yeah you're probably going to have to rent the theater yeah and you're still going to just be watching a dvd in a the theater <laughs> yeah right <laughs> like, yeah exactly that's, you're just be paying a lot of money to watch a dvd <laughs> but but yeah like one just very small thing about um sort of older movies in general that i always really love is is there is just something about movies that show like stylized credits up front very quickly and then no end credits yeah that i just love and i know it's like in incon- it's relatively inconsequential because like well what you can just turn the movie off when the credits start rolling but i'm like no but there's just a conciseness yeah to like Night of the Hunter, Robert Menstrom, You know, just shows the people. Yeah. Here we go, movie. Yeah. And then it plays, and then it's the end. Yeah. Paramount picture. You know what? I'm doing the newsy voice for some reason. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and then it's just black, just done. Not the endless crawl of yeah. you know. Which I, I'm aware that that's I'm saying. What? 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 What are you talking about now? Why you want to erase all of those people's contributions <laughs> from? <laughs> well, whatever the studio system yeah. of the 1950s was horrible and but i'm like i'm not talking about that
0: <laughs> no definitely the aesthetic of it and the feeling of it i also i feel that way too with um intermissions i fucking oh I, yeah I love intermissions i went and saw 2001 and uh in a theater and the intermission was so fun dude <laughs> Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, you got like five ten minutes or, or five minutes. I don't. I can't remember. Like you have to, a decent amount of time to just go out and kind of like collect yourself, and then go back in, and it kicks in again. And it was like, oh, it's awesome.
1: There was a movie that my my friend, the same guy in the that I told that story about a couple episodes ago about watching Satyricon, um, <laughs> and oh yeah, yeah this might have been this like the same week as that where we were. We went to see some movie. I think it was called "The Best of Youth." I want to say that was the English title. It was was an Italian movie um, that was like I think eight or nine hours long. Oh shit! It was incredibly long, and it had it had an intermission, and it was like a full. It was like an hour intermission. It was like go get lunch.
0: Wow! (laughs) Like yeah, you need your. And so we went
1: to some theater in Santa Monica. Sat there for four hours, then went to, you know, in and out, parked in some neighborhood, smoked a bunch of weed, went back, watched the rest of it, and because then I remember going to, um, Tim's Tim Clark's house after that, and him being like, "What would? Oh, what'd you guys get up to today?" And we were like, "Watched a movie," and he's like, "That's it." We're like, "Yeah, it was like nine hours. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we got there at ten in the morning. (laughs) Like, what is that
0: experience like? I, I can't even. I'm." I don't. I've never experienced that.
1: It's. I mean, I think it was much more like, you know, special at the time. I mean, okay, I barely remember anything about the specifics of this movie. I don't. I have never wanted to rewatch it or even recommend it to anybody. Yeah. I my memory is that it was fine, but that it wasn't um, like particularly. It wasn't like seeing Phil Niblock, who played for three and a half hours. Where you're like, yeah, that's a really long concert, but man, that was crazy. That got into some really weird territory. This was like, from my current vantage point looking back, I'm like, we basically just binge-watched binge, binge watched a series oh. in a movie theater. Mm. It was sort of like if you and your friend and 20 strangers just decided, like, we're going to watch season one of Six Feet Under. Yeah. Just today. All the way through, Yeah. Yeah, because it was a fairly, it was like a very sort of normal movie. It was about growing up in Italy in the 60s or something like that. Um, so it wasn't like Bella Tarr or other people who were sort of notoriously uh, long-winded. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember really liking, like, uh, looking back on all that very fondly. And I still do look back on that fondly, so, you know.
0: This has been the Modern Rubbish Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Modern Rubbish Podcast, and you can find show notes, links, and more at modernrubbish.ca. If you enjoyed what you heard, please give us a five-star rating. And feel free to reach out to us via email at modernrubbishpodcast at gmail.com.